Hi, this is Tanya Domi. Welcome to The Thought Project, recorded at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, fostering groundbreaking research and scholarship in the arts, social sciences, and sciences. In this space, we talk with faculty and doctoral students about the big thinking and big ideas generating cutting-edge research, informing New Yorkers and the world. This week's guest is Linda Martine Alcoff, who is a professor of philosophy at Hunter College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. She specializes in epistemology, feminism, race theory, and existentialism. Alcoff has called for greater inclusion of historically underrepresented groups in philosophy and notes that philosophers from these groups have created new fields of inquiry, including feminist philosophy, critical race theory, and LGBTQ philosophy. She earned her Ph.D. in philosophy from Brown University. She was recognized as the Distinguished Woman Philosopher of 2005 by the Society for Women in Philosophy. She is the author of 13 books, including The Future of Whiteness, published by Polity Press, 2015. She began teaching at CUNY in early 2009 after teaching for many years at Syracuse University. Welcome, Linda. Nice to be here. So here we are, 15 months after the 2016 presidential elections. The shocking election, indeed, of Donald Trump that was followed by the Women's March, considered the largest demonstration in U.S. history, Uh, and the subsequent uh, explosion of the Me Too moment that we're currently occupying. Arguably, this is probably the most significant mobilization of women in America since second wave feminism. What are your thoughts about this? It's incredibly exciting to see. I mean, it's, for one thing, it's important to know that it's not just in the United States. It was, in some ways, really galvanized by a lot of activity going on in Mexico and Argentina and Egypt and India around some large cases and huge demonstrations and policy proposals and initiatives and reform movements. But To see it happening in the United States in places like Hollywood is, you know, I tell my students, don't be fatalistic about the future. You never know what's going to happen. The most important thing, I think, to, to understand that the movement has done is it's not just the fact that women victims are coming forward and making accusations. Many of the women who have come forward against some of the more famous figures came forward before. So what's happening is a shift in public reception to accusations made by women and and other victims. There's uh, more credibility being accorded to the accusers. There's more seriousness being um, understood in regard to these kinds of crimes of sexual harassment as well as assault and rape. Now we understand, we should understand that 
that harassment often doesn't stop with harassment. It leads to assault and rapes. So Absolutely. I mean, the principle in terms of domestic violence and is that unless there's some kind of intervention, it is going to escalate. And, you know, what's really remarkable about what you're saying is the change in the reception. That is what is so markedly different. I mean, the this recent you know, terrible uh, moment in a Michigan court of all the Olympic gymnasts. Uh, just a shocking number of women who were silent for so, so many years and not a single adult at Michigan State University or in USA Gymnastics came forward to help these women. It was a really, really horrible moment and yet I was so inspired, personally inspired by their courage and strength. And by the judge willing to take, you know, criticism from her peers to allow for an extended amount of testimony. I mean, in a few cases, the victims of Nassar had come forward earlier, um, but they were not allowed to go forward in the courts because of statute of limitations. So there's changes in the public's reception, but also it's forcing us to think about changes in court procedures that disallow um, accusers, especially of childhood incidents. I'm a survivor of childhood sexual assault, and I know that in almost all cases, somebody knows. Somebody hears the scream, somebody sees the evidence. Um, and so what we have to really think about is it's not just a crime that's caused by the fact that these are very vulnerable people who are silenced, but there's a cohort around perpetrators. There's there's institutional, so many institutions, from religious ones to military ones to university ones to political ones that provide cover for um, the you know, predators to find vulnerable people. So that's what's got to change. It's not just the ability for accusers to come forward, but for them to be heard, for them to speak in court, for them to speak in the public, and for us to hear their words and rethink our practices around, in, in many of our institutions and our practices around morally blameless heterosexual behavior, what's thought of as morally blameless heterosexual behavior, but really to take another look at daily practice in so many domains of life. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that, um, you know, it's been a series of women coming forward talking about what has happened to them. And then this week, this past week, we have seen uh, the the events of a White House staffer who was engaged in domestic abuse of his former spouses become a national story, and we see the president trip all over himself uh, in affirming the staffer, the male staffer, and the reaction has not only been harsh and swift from the public, it also is being reflected in polling data now that white women who have been supporting Trump, those numbers have dipped by more than 10 points for the first time since he has taken office. So there seems to be a shift that there's enough of this. There's, it, there's enough disgust, maybe, that it will 
perhaps have some political consequences. Yes, I mean, th- that's what's amazing about this this movement since uh, October and Me Too movement, but also some cases earlier that actually people have been taken down and taken out. Um, people as powerful as Dominique Strauss-Kahn and Jimmy Savile at the BBC after his death um, uh, and Harvey Weinstein uh, so that money and Which power. really might have been the trigger. I mean, Harvey yeah. Weinstein seems to be the one guy, one guy too many that triggered this moment. But what's frustrating is, you know, Weinstein had a whole career. Uh, Strauss-Kahn had a whole career. They made a lot of money. They got a lot of fame. They were able to do a lot of things and make a lot of choices and judgments. And it's at the end <laughs> that they, uh, you know, have their comeuppance. And, and we need to figure out uh, how to change our practices, our legal practices, as well as other practices, to get at these folks before the end of their career, before they have 50 or 150 victims. Agreed, agreed. So not only do we have this Me Too moment, but Trump's election actually marks the first time in U.S. history, at least in the modern era, when America has elected a populist to lead the nation, a man who many believe to be perhaps the most racist, xenophobic, and sexist president in history. Is Trump one of the reasons why you are organizing and co-organizing a two-day conference with a preponderance of your philosophy friends uh, on racial inequality in March? Yes, and the focus on racial inequality is quite purposive. I think there's been too much of a focus on what we have achieved in the United States in terms of racial justice, how far we've come, how many things have changed. And yet um, scholars who actually work on this topic will tell you to a person (laughs) that the changes are, are not nearly as significant as they are often touted to be. Um, by our leaders, uh, including President Obama, I think. So, you know, in terms of of poverty and incarceration and violence um, and injustice in in every institutional sphere. So we wanted to have a conference that would would not think about, um, you know, idealized conceptions of racial justice and equality, but really think about inequality, not only... um, to note that it still exists, but also to think about what constitutes it. Um, does having a predominantly Latino or African American neighborhood constitute or is caused necessarily by racial inequality? One of our um, speakers, Tommy Shelby from Harvard, has written a really important book called Dark Ghettos, in which he argues that that having um, you know, that the perfect integration of neighborhoods is not necessary for racial justice, that you could have a preponderance of an ethnic group in a neighborhood and that not constitute racial injustice under certain conditions. So the question is, what are those conditions? When is something, when is a preponderance, for example, of certain racialized groups in a sector of the labor market, when does that constitute injustice and when does it not? So there's a lot of interesting questions there. 
That is interesting. And as a race theorist, uh, you know, I think that you have some special insights here. I mean, your your last book uh, was recognized as probably one of the top books in America on the issue of race. Um, we're coming, we're, we're in this moment where Black Lives Matter emerged uh, after the horrendous events in Missouri and, and, and of course, here in New York City and on Staten Island, uh, the death of Eric Gardner, the murder of Eric Gardner, uh, just a, a, a plethora of black men and, and children being killed in this country uh, by police officers. And there's no consequence. There's no consequence. Uh, you see organizations like the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights and Human Rights, you know, addressing the UN, which is something that has periodically happened over many decades uh, in the last uh, 60, 70 years of civil rights movement where appeals have been made to the UN. But now we're we're really confronted by probably the most racist administration probably in my lifetime. I mean, I, of course, I, I was a young child. Um, I'm one year and one day older than you, Linda. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I remember, you know, JFK and LBJ and, and of course, you know, going through what we went through 50 years ago this year with the assassination of Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy. So, you know, we have seen a lot, but where is it going to end? When is it going to stop? And some of my friends in the movement would say, when do we get to liberation? Equality is not enough. How do you answer that? Well, I think it's critical to think, as Dr. King advised us to do, about both race and class and gender together. If we just think about race and gender and we diversify the CEO level (laughs) and the professional managerial class, it's not going to necessarily trickle down to people's lives, the majority of people's lives, you know, who who work regular kinds of of jobs. And um, so I I think to to really, um, we're making progress in terms of we now have more women professionals, we now have more people of color who have achieved middle class. We have a larger middle class of color than we had when you and I were little kids. But that, does, that doesn't translate to the, the kinds of e- employment experiences. The on-the-job deaths of, of Mexican day laborers in the United States, the fact that one sanitation worker dies every single day in the United States, as the Times reported this week. Uh, and the the kind of police uh, reactions to um, to people in, in which there there's murder, as you say, with uh, with no consequences. So we have to think about making ju- making progress in terms of racism and sexism, but always with a connection, with an intersection to class issues, so that we can see where the majority of the problems are and think more broadly about what the solutions will be. Yes, yeah, so I, I reviewed your writings in The Stone at the New York Times, and uh, you talk about being a Latina and how that informs your 
your views, uh, not just your views, but your work, your research. Uh, and, you know, we occupy all these different identities. Some of us are gay and we're a woman, or some of us are Latina and we're a person of color, or we may have multiple identities. I mean, that's very common. So it is really wonderful to see that the Academy is now embracing this in a way that you hear it particularly at the Graduate Center. I think it's pretty distinctive about the work in this building. I just wanted to ask you, I mean, not only do we have a racist and sexist regime in D.C., but we also probably have one of the most xenophobic, probably since the 1920s. Um, As a Latina and as a scholar, I mean, how do you confront and talk about really an immigration policy that's being pushed on multiple levels uh, to rid this country of really 11 million people, however they can do it. Um, They have, uh, I just read this week where even in New York, there were 20 times the request by ICE to NYPD for actions that were apparently all declined, allegedly, according to NYPD. Um, And at this time, uh, most undocumented people must be absolutely living in fear 24-7. When I think about that, I I recall the fact that the uh, Anne Frank Foundation called... uh, Trump's policies really uh, uh, what you would call child abuse. I call them child abuse. Um, So everything in the world as we know it seems to be upside down. This country was founded by immigrants fleeing uh, their own oppression which is such an irony. I'm actually the granddaughter of an immigrant who came here from Albania. You know we're in this moment the only reason she could have been disqualified is if she had tuberculosis at that time coming through Ellis Island. But now, if you have brown skin and you're on the street, you probably fear literally for your life. Yes, and, and one thing people need to be aware of is that most Latina families have uh, or an undocumented person in their family. So it really affects almost all of us in some way because there's somebody we know or somebody in our circle, you know, that, that doesn't have documentation. I feel like, you know, what Trump has been doing really before he was elected during the, the campaign, the kind of stuff he was saying was was creating this massive nationwide stereotype threat <laughs> that immigrants were experiencing. I'm an immigrant from Panama, from Central America, um, which he would probably refer to by uh, an epithet, which I shouldn't say on this podcast. <laughs> and, you know, it's, you feel it in, in, your, in uh, your psyche when you hear these things being repeated over and over in the media. It's, it's quite painful. Even when you know how wrong it is, it's just painful to be attacked in this way. But I think what's important is to uh, that Trump has been helpful for. He's been helpful for a n- number of things. He's been <laughs> galvanizing feminism, but but he's been helpful to reveal the fact that our immigration policy has always been um, about race. I mean, its history until 1965 was overt. 
um, that, and there were laws in the 19th century about who could become a citizen of the United States, which countries. There were quotas uh, for people coming from certain kinds of countries, and it was only since 1965 that that quota system dropped. But there's always been a certain idea that certain immigrants are good and others are not, and it has to do with their their racial identity, their geopolitical uh, origin, um, and we have these ideas about what they can contribute, whether they'll be loyal to the United States government, whether they will be able to be assimilated to uh, a WASP culture <laughs> uh, and uh, national sort of public discourse. Um, and it, so there's a, there's a racism in our talk of immigration. We can't any, we should not any longer talk about our immigration policy without thinking about how it may be informed, unconsciously perhaps, by people's implicit ideas about racial groups and different regions of the world. Oh, without a doubt, I completely agree. And, you know, what's interesting is uh, the, the fact that he now uses this term and all the Republicans are using the term chain migration, when in fact it's been the policy of the United States to reunite families since 1952, irrespective of race. I mean, y with all the limitations uh, and the policies uh, that has always been a principle, and actually our colleague Phil Kasnitz just wrote an op-ed in the Daily News talking about how chain migration will actually probably ultimately undercut the idea of attracting some of the best skilled people here because they won't be able to bring their family members. They don't even think about that, but maybe they do. Uh, that's perhaps one of the unintended consequences of this really harsh, and I consider it, you know, nihilist approach. It's just, it's just like out of a different, a parallel world that, that I actually just can't relate to. Um, um, so here we are, and uh, as, as a matter of fact, right now, 25 minutes ago, the Senate started a second day of debate on the immigration bill, and we don't know where it's going to end up, but, you know, there is hope that maybe uh, the DACA people will will be protected um, and will be able to stay. I don't think the American public uh, will be able to tolerate seeing massive images of, of people being um, deported out of this country. I mean, it's happening now, but we're talking about people that are your teachers, your, your doctors, your I mean, they're everywhere. I mean, they're in universities. Uh, we're talking about the teacher of the year in New Mexico is a DACA uh, person. And the and the parallels with World War II, when the United States turned away um, ships of European Jews fle fleeing uh, genocide, are so crystal clear. I mean, there's already people who have been deported and who have been murdered. There was a woman who was who uh, was murdered by her husband. She came to the United States fleeing domestic violence. They sent her back. She was murdered, I think, within a week. I, I think, but I think the, the other thing that too many people in the United States are not aware of is that 
we need to move away from the narrative of of poor people wanting to get to a rich country because there's pre-existing relationships between the United States and many of the countries where the largest numbers of immigrants come from. Pre-existing relationships in which we've interfered with democratic movements, we've engineered coup d'etats, we've robbed them of, of their resources and given them short shrift on labor costs um, for the production of goods that we use and, and take advantage of in this country. So it's there's uh, an obligation, I think, because of these prior long traditions of terrible foreign policy toward many parts of the world, particularly Latin America and Southeast Asia, obviously, but other parts of the country, other parts of the world as well, um, that really uh, need to be factored into um, how we think about our attitude and, our, and what we owe and what is just in relationship to the immigrants trying to come. Yes, I, I agree with all that. So I think a good place to go here is that at the end of the day, um, you you actually t- took on the whole issue of Dominique Strauss-Kahn, who created this spectacle in New York City uh, back in 2011. And it's like nobody's re- even recalling that now, which is, which is, I think, a real interesting absence. Uh, he allegedly and probably without a doubt attacked a maid in the, in the hotel where he was staying. He was considered to be the next candidate for the most uh, liberal party in France for president. And there was a consensus, a national consensus by the spectacle that no, he was not going to become not 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 even a candidate. Uh, and you took this on uh, in your writings and you talk about uh, the juxtaposition, the difference, you know, with the French and their mores and, you know, contrasted with the American and their puritanical uh, history. Uh, can you talk about, you know, Dominique Strauss-Kahn is kind of like the forerunner of this period. He sort of, he was out there and then he disappeared. And now we have, uh, we can actually compare Trump to him in some ways. And there's probably many differences. I'd like to hear your views on that. Yeah, what was so interesting about that case uh, was the fact that the hotel maid who was a uh, um, Ghanaian immigrant Nasifato Diallo was believed, uh, and it was like the the case with the Duke Lacrosse team a number of years ago, in which um, an African American sex worker was believed. So these are categories of victims that are often never <laughs> given uh, any kind of credence or credibility. Or if they are, or sometimes people believe they're harmed, but they can be harmed. Right? They're strong enough to take it or they're not s- serious, um, they, they, they don't get credence as, as being victims that deserve justice. Uh, recent research that I've read shows that this is a widespread problem for hotel maids. In many instances, hotels give their maids like a, a panic button that they can push in case they're in somebody's room and they get attacked. So this is, there's reason to give her credence. But the question you're raising about cultural relativism is really interesting, and 
after Strauss-Kahn was was uh, accused, there was this discussion about how well it's very just different among the French. They they just have different sort of practices and mores. But pretty quickly, a big public conversation happened in France in which women were saying they don't enjoy being groped. <laughs> uh, they don't enjoy being harassed. Uh, that there's the difference is not as big as it is sometimes imagined to be. Flirting is one thing, but most of us, you know, uh, there's a, it's easy to find a distinction between sort of flirting in a workplace and harassment that continues when your no and your polite no is not heard and the person continues, or absolutely unwanted groping and touching um, is you know is fairly easy to to sort of see what well, that's, what that that's, is and that's basically simple assault. I mean, you're talking about crimes. Yeah, and it's so it's not really a, you know that uh, ambiguous an interpretation, um, and uh, I think the the idea and Trump has this idea too that. Um, it's innocuous behavior. It's just sort of sexual banter. It's just boys will be boys, as Melania said. Um, or locker room talk. Uh, is such a mischaracterization, an intentional mischaracterization of the reality of harassment, which causes women uh, every day to change their jobs to... Uh, and, and then they, you know, change their jobs, and they can't give the full reasons for it, so they can't get unemployment insurance. I mean, it's a, it's a real problem of employment and of fairness in employment for women across this country and in, in many parts of the world. And that that case, um, the Strauss-Kahn case, I think was was very important because it was a moment, even if it was a brief moment, <laughs> where. Uh, the victim in this case was listened to and her voices were heard and we hope that even though um, the the justice in that case was uh, modest that that case becomes echoed in future cases so that other victims can take courage and hope from uh, what happened in that case and the fact that he is no longer uh, the powerful world leader that he once was. That's a good place for us to stop. I want to thank you for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to The Thought Project, and thanks to our guest, Linda Martine Alcoff. The Thought Project was produced in partnership with CUNY TV, located at the Graduate Center in the heart of New York City, with production, engineering, and technical assistance by Sarah Fishman and Jack Horowitz. I'm Tanya Domi. Tune in next week. <laughs>